So this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 36. But we're going to start our reading for the sake of context in verse 26. Matthew chapter 27, verse 26 says, Then he, referring to Pilate, released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when he had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Well, as we come to uh, our, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we come to Matthew's account of the crucifixion. And it's my prayer this morning, it's my prayer that as we look at the humiliation, you know, in the, in the crucifixion of our Savior, that the Holy Spirit would give us attentive minds, that the Holy Spirit would give us fresh insight into what our precious Savior went through in order to save all my, mankind, but more specifically what Jesus went through in order to save each one of us individually. You know, I pray that God would minister to each of us today in a greater way, the truth regarding, you know, his great love for us and the links that he was willing to go to in order to uh, offer forgiveness for our sins and bring us into a loving relationship with the Father. You know, may our hearts be stirred this morning and be broken at the same time as we look at what the cost of salvation was. And I pray uh, as we look at the crucifixion that it wouldn't be something that we would take lightly. You know, my prayer is that as his followers, it would impact our hearts and lives the way God intends it to. And if you're here this morning or if you're watching online this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, You know, my prayer is that today will be the day that you surrender your heart to him, turning from your sin and turning to him and that you would receive the forgiveness for your sins that he freely offers everyone and that you'd enter into a loving relationship, which is actually what Jesus wants for you. He wants you to enjoy him in this life and then on into eternity with him. Well, what we have before us in this section of Scripture is the 
physical suffering of Jesus Christ on the day of his crucifixion. And I think it's worth noticing that the details of Jesus' crucifixion are, are, are actually not very much. We don't go into great depth. I mean, between all four of the Gospels, you know, uh, we have just really a handful of um, verses regarding to uh, the crucifixion. The Gospels really just kind of encapsulate the events of the story for us, right? You'd think that such an important event like the crucifixion, you'd think that it would require pages and pages to relate to us what our Lord suffered. But what we have, again, is actually very, very little. Not much more than really what we read in verse 45. Uh, I think it's 35. I missed it. Uh, that they crucified him. Each of the Gospels just encapsulates the whole event of crucifixion like that. And then they crucified him. They led him to be crucified. And I believe the reason the Holy Spirit doesn't give us more detail is because we wouldn't be able to handle it, actually. It would be just too traumatizing for us. The actual details of crucifixion are just too horrific, too terrible, too intense. One of the important insights, though, that we do have regarding the cross gives us a little insight into the heart of our Lord um, you know, in regards to his crucifixion is found in Hebrews chapter uh, 12, verse 2. And it's there that we read, for the joy that was set before him, speaking of Jesus, it's, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus despised the shame. And the Greek word used there, translated shame, it means shame. It means humiliation. It means disgrace and dishonor. You know, I don't think that we can even come close to understanding the shame that Jesus endured. He was and is perfect in every, every way, bearing the sin of the world. But more than that, the shame and humiliation that came from uh, stripping the Son of God naked and then beating him, scourging him, spitting upon him, mocking him, and then being crucified by his own creation. You know, I don't believe words can even begin to express the level of shame he endured. The treatment that Jesus endured would have been incredibly disgraceful and dishonoring if it had been poured out on any one of us. It would have been incredibly shameful if, if you or I were treated in such a way. But it was especially shameful in light of who Jesus was and is. And beyond the scope of shameful, boy, when you consider that Jesus, God incarnate, did nothing deserving of death, but went around doing good. He loved the unlovable. He touched the untouchable. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cleansed the leper. He was the friend of sinners. And those uh, 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 that society had marginalized, right? And then on top of all of that, what does he do? 
He reveals to all of us the love of the Father. Right? I think we do ourselves a disservice, a great disservice, if we allow ourselves to become so familiar with the story of Jesus' crucifixion that it no longer moves us deeply, and it no longer moves us to tears. And I think we need to realize that on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion, he felt the pain in his body. You know, when they beat him mercilessly, he felt the pain from the crown of thorns being placed on his head, digging into his scalp. He felt the excruciating pain when they scourged him with a cat of nine tails. Right? When they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. He felt the pain just as fully as you and I would have felt it. Jesus is fully God, but at the same time, he's fully man, and he felt the pain and suffering that any of us would have felt had that kind of brutality been poured out upon us. But the greater aspect of Jesus' suffering, we've talked about it in the past, was not physical, it was actually spiritual. You know, as the sins of the entire world were heaped upon him, the father, unable to look upon him, turns his back on the son. And for the first time in all eternity past, right, the loving reunion within the Godhead has been severed. Jesus is completely alone, separated from the father, so that we would never have to experience that separation for all eternity future. But I think we want to remember is what Jesus has already endured up to this point in time, up to the, the uh, point where we're looking at, these scriptures that we're looking at. You know, we need to remember what he's endured up to this point in time from the hands of the religious leaders, right? Long before he was ever turned over to Pilate to be condemned to death, Jesus has already spent this long night without any sleep, Right In the Garden of Gethsemane, where he told uh, the disciples that he was deeply distressed. He said to Peter, James, and John, he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrow, even to death. And again, I don't think Jesus was uh, someone that was given to exaggeration or hyperbole. I think when he said that his soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even to death, I think he was speaking literally. So just try to imagine the all-powerful, almighty God, the creator of the universe in such distress that he would ask Peter, James, and John, stay here and watch with me. And I can't begin to comprehend it. While experiencing the anguish that he was going through, they came and they arrested him. They bound him in the garden as a common criminal, they led him away to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. And we're told after a sham trial, completely illegal, against every one of their laws, but after the sham trial, which the, the religious leaders put him through, afterwards, they began to spit upon him. You know, I don't know if there's a gesture that conveys contempt and disgust, for another person, 
in, in a greater measure than somebody spitting in somebody else's face. I mean, just think of the hatred that's behind someone spitting in another person's face. And then imagine every single one of those religious leaders to a man walked up and spat in the face of our Savior. And afterwards, then they place a bag over his head and begin to punch him in the face. You know, these men who did this to Jesus, they were not everyday thugs and criminals and thieves that are roaming the streets of Jerusalem. No, these guys were highly esteemed religious leaders who claimed to represent God. They're the ones that are doing this to our Savior. Placing a bag over Jesus' head and punching him wouldn't allow him to brace himself for each blow. It wouldn't allow him to see that punch coming, you know, in order to react, in order to, to flinch in such a way to soften or lessen the blow. He took the full force of each punch, right, which caused tremendous physical damage as each punch landed on his face. You know, Jesus had no idea where or when the next punch would come or where it would come from, right? He was completely unable, unable to defend himself. And then they mocked him saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you, right? They were demanding there, they were demanding that Jesus would identify the one who struck him by name. That's what they're saying. And the crazy thing is, he knew their names. He knew who they were that were beating him. And he allowed it still. When their sadistic hatred was fully released upon Jesus, when the darkness of their heart was satisfied with their brutal treatment of our Savior, Jesus' face was swollen, his eyes maybe even swollen shut. Right, his face certainly bruised and cut, probably bleeding from his mouth and nose. The blood of our precious Savior mingled now with the spit of sinful man. Just try to imagine it if you can. Just try to picture it in your mind. After all of this, after standing before Pilate, Pilate ordered Jesus to be scourged. Scourging in the Roman world was known as the half-death. And the reason why was after a scourging, the victim who survived scourging, right, he was actually really only half alive. Most people that were scourged by the Romans didn't survive it. And as I pointed out in previous studies, the whip that they used to scourge uh, Jesus was made up of multiple leather thongs, uh, anywhere from three to nine of these thongs. And those thongs had pieces of bone and metal along with shards of glass and pottery knotted, knotted into each strand. And the intention was, as each lash was laid upon the prisoner's back, his buttocks and his thighs, right? It would rip away the flesh. These men who scourged Jesus were Roman soldiers, and they showed no mercy to any of the, their prisoners. They enjoyed their work. They took pleasure in taking a man who had violated the laws of Rome. You know, they'd take that man and make him pay 
a price for his rebellion to Rome. Historical accounts of scourging reveal that, you know, in a very short period of time, you know, the skin of the victim was gone. And not just the skin on his back, because the prisoner was scourged from the top of his shoulders, you know, all uh, all the way down to the soles of his feet, basically from head to toe, right? Exposing, uh, you know, the muscle and the tendons of the victim. In some cases, uh, if a scourging went on long enough, vital organs were exposed, right? The loss of an eye wasn't uncommon. In some cases, ribs were pulled out, ripped away from the rib cage. And none of those things would have been a reason for uh, the Romans to stop the scourging. Can you imagine, can you begin to imagine the pain involved in having such a scourging inflicted upon you. Imagine the pain of having, you know, virtually all of your skin on your back, your buttocks, the back of your thighs, your legs, have it all removed. I mean, it's incomprehensible to me. The Jews, they set a limit on scourging. Their limit was 40 stripes minus one, and they saw that as merciful. But the Romans, they set no limits on the number of lashes a victim would receive. You know, they would continue to scourge a man and only stop when the victim was just this side of dying, right? They they were in no way concerned about the long-term effects of a scourging had on a victim. You know, they were going to die anyway. So they would scourge a victim just short of death, right? That way, the condemned would also be able to suffer the pain and agony associated with the crucifixion before they died. And that was their goal, you know, to make the transgressor suffer. This is what went on before Jesus even comes to the point of the story that we're studying this morning in the verses that are before us. This is what went on before verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. Now, this garrison that was called to come around our Lord was probably numbered about 600 men. It only took four uh, Roman soldiers to carry out a crucifixion. But they called out all the soldiers stationed there with the governor to come and surround Jesus. Now, what you should understand is that these Roman soldiers took even greater pains to make any Jew that was brought before them uh, as miserable as possible. And with that bit of information, now just try to imagine what these soldiers thought when not only a Jew was brought before them, but on this morning, it was the king of the Jews that was brought before them. Each of these soldiers had probably seen Rome. Each of these soldiers had probably seen the majesty and pageantry of Rome. They'd um, seen the bodyguards and the powerful people that surround uh, the emperor of Rome. They'd seen all the servants that attend to every need and desire of the Caesar, right? And now, here before them 
is this blood and spit-covered Jew who had claimed to be a king. I mean, imagine their amusement. (laughs) Guys, we can't have a king going around looking like this. Now can we? So verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Scarlet was the color of royalty. The dye... to cut to the dye to color fabric, scarlet was so expensive that only royalty could afford it. In verse 29, when they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. Uh, this is so very interesting to me because what was the result of Adam's sin? The result was that the ground was cursed and began to bring forth thorns and thistles. When you go back to Genesis chapter 3, that's what you see. The thorns were put Uh, The thorns were part of the curse, right? Brought upon all mankind as a result of sin. So now we see Jesus wearing a crown of thorns, right? He's bearing the sin and the curse of all mankind. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And here we see the crown of thorns, a symbol of the curse upon his head. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. You know, the specific thorn bushes, uh, if you haven't been to that region of the world, um, you know, uh, in that part of the world, the thorn bushes, they have long thorns that are just as hard as nails, right? And they're sharp. And you can rest assured that they didn't place that crown of thorns on Jesus' head very gently. Right? They pressed it in on his head with great force and enthusiasm until those thorns meant bone. And this was a crown that cut deep, pierced, and, the, and bloodied the head of our Savior. And they put in his hand, in his, uh, a reed in his right hand. You know, as these soldiers mock Jesus, they say, you know, a king you know, not only needs a crown, but he must have a scepter also. And a scepter is a symbol, everyone knows, of the power and strength of that king's kingdom. So what do they do? They put this flimsy reed in Jesus' hand. Little did they know. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And amazingly, Jesus stands before them completely silent. And he stood silent through all of this treatment. Personally, I love what Spurgeon has to say in regards to this verse. He says, Oh, that we were half as inventive in devising honor for our king as these soldiers were in planning his dishonor. Let us offer to Christ the real homage that these men pretended to offer him. Verse 30, they spat, then they spat on him. These soldiers just continue to make sport of our Lord. I think that these verses, when we give ourselves to them, not just reading over them quickly, not just glossing over them, but really taking time to consider them. Man, I think it's just so hard to fathom. This is the way they treated our precious Lord. You know, then it's sobering to understand, at least for me, it's sobering to realize that one day each of these soldiers will bow before Jesus again. 
And when they do, it will be minus the mocking. They'll bow before him trembling. As it says in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. And the and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you imagine what a rude awakening it will be for these guys when they bow before Jesus on that judgment day, when they realize that they spat in the face of God Almighty who came to the earth to die for their sins. You know, on that judgment day when they're brought before the Lord, and this time, He'll be magnificently robed in glorious splendor. They'll fall to their knees at just the mention of his name, and they'll confess him to be king. They'll confess him to be the Christ who they once mocked. I mean, can you just imagine it? The shame, the sorrow, the regret, the dread that these soldiers will feel in that day. You know, as followers of Christ, I think it's hard for us to even begin to imagine that people are still mocking and spitting in the face of our Lord. You know, they mock him by using his name as a curse word. They have no idea. You know, they spit in his face every time they hear the gospel and they reject it. Every time they hear of his love and they refuse to give themselves to his love. They spit in his face when they fail to yield their lives completely and totally to him, to the one who came to take the penalty of their sin, the one who came to absorb the wrath of God in their place. I think that we need to allow our hearts to break for people who do not know the Lord. It's going to be such a rude awakening when, when they you know, fall on their faces before Jesus and they are are going to confess him to be Lord and then have to give him an account for why they treated Jesus in such a base manner. In verse 30, it says, Then they spat on him and took a reed and struck him on the head. Spitting on somebody, uh, like I said, is probably, certainly was then, but it's still probably the ultimate insult you can pay another person. Spitting in Jesus' face is an expression of genuine hatred being heaped upon him. It was all the hatred, I'm sure, that these Roman guards had for all Jews. And now it's being vented on Jesus. Then they tore the reed from his hand, and they proceeded to beat him with that reed. And just imagine as they beat Jesus on the head with that reed, and the Greek tense of that verb is that they continually violently struck him with that reed over and over again, causing the crown of thorns to just dig deeper and deeper into his scalp, right? If all that wasn't enough, the humiliation went even further. We read in Isaiah 50, verse 6, we read concerning the Messiah, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Not only was Jesus whipped, living, leaving his back, his buttocks, his thighs, and his legs looking like hamburger meat. Not only was he spit upon repeatedly, but they grabbed hold of his beard and 
ripped it out of his face by the fistful. You know, Jesus made no attempt to defend himself or fight back. In verse 31, and when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, ripping it from his bloody back, which by now had begun to coagulate and adhere to the robe, opening again the wounds on his back. Then they put on his, clo- uh, his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. You know, one of the things I find interesting here in regards uh, to the Romans, uh, Roman soldiers recruiting Simon to carry the cross of Jesus is that it reveals to us that the Roman soldiers meted out every single bit of physical abuse upon Jesus that they could short of killing him before his crucifixion. It was no wonder, uh, given the physical abuse that Jesus had endured through the night and now on into the morning, you know, it's no wonder that as Jesus attempts to carry his cross from the praetorium to Calvary, he's unable to do it. Jesus is literally more than half dead at this point. And as a result of their, it's as a result of their harsh, sadistic, brutal treatment of our Lord and Savior. So they enlist Simon the Cyrenian, you know, to bear the cross of Jesus. And I find this interesting in so many ways. First off, Simon the Cyrenian, he's a proselyte, right? Cyrene was a city in North Africa. He's a Gentile that's converted to Judaism, and he's made uh, this incredibly long pilgrimage uh, to come to Jerusalem to honor God, to celebrate the Passover. And as he's making his way through the city, he hears some commotion going on over there probably, right? And maybe Simon, he pressed his way through the crowd to investigate what's going on. And he comes to the front of the crowd and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus failing under the weight of the cross. And you might want to notice in verse 32 that the soldiers compelled Simon to carry the cross. They didn't compel Simon out of compassion for Jesus. I mean, they got a job to do. They have a prisoner that's got to get crucified. They got to keep this thing moving, right? And according to Roman law, a Roman soldier could come up to any person in the Roman Empire and lay the tip of his spear or lay his sword on the shoulder of that person. And then that person would be obligated by Roman law to assist that soldier in whatever way they needed assistance for the distance of one mile. You know, and as a result of being compelled to carry the cross of this condemned man, Simon would not be able now to partake of the Passover feast. Right? Simon would have been understandably, understandably upset and disappointed by all this. Maybe he saved all his life to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover a Passover feast. And now, because he's come in contact with this condemned man, he becomes bloody. As he lifts the cross that Jesus struggled under the weight of, the blood of Christ is now transferred upon him. 
But now Simon, again, is understandably disappointed because he's become ceremonially unclean, unable to celebrate the Passover. And yet at this point, this is what I find interesting. At this point, Simon has no idea just how close he's come to the Passover lamb. How close he's come to the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very one the celebration of the Passover points to. Luke's gospel tells us that Simon bore the cross after Jesus. That's what Luke says. In other words, Jesus led the way to Calvary with the soldiers, and Simon carried the cross following him. Isn't that interesting? Simon probably had opportunity to watch Jesus. He got to see firsthand how Jesus was reacting to this whole situation. He saw the pain and suffering of Jesus that was brought about by the physical demands of just simply walking now up to Calvary to be crucified. The pain and suffering as a result of the abuse and beating he's already endured. Simon probably also witnessed the people who loved Jesus. How they began to line the road as they hear what the Romans and the religious leaders are now doing to him. And we're told that there were women along the road who were lamenting and mourning for him. You know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Simon stayed and watched the crucifixion of Jesus, that he saw all the supernatural events that also took place. You know, the darkness that came over all of the world, the earthquake that that occurred as Jesus breathed his last. And Simon had no idea when he came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, that he would come to understand uh, what the Passover was really all about, who the true Passover lamb happened to be, and how close he had come to the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, the very one who is the fulfillment of the Passover. And at that time, Simon probably had no idea No idea at all how the events of the things that he was unwittingly, you know, unexpectedly caught up in that day, how they would change his life. Simon actually becomes a believer probably as a result of this encounter with Jesus Christ, right? And I'm sure after this Passover, there were many Passovers where Simon tells his kids the story of how he encountered the Lamb of God. How do you know that Simon became a believer, Gary? Well, in Mark's gospel, Mark 15, 21, we read, and it's a parallel account, and it says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Simon is apparently a well-known figure in the early church, right? Mark says they got Simon to carry the cross, to carry Jesus' cross. You know, Rufus and Alexander's dad, right? And the fact that Paul the apostle later greets Rufus in the uh, letter to the Romans, it leads us to believe that this contact with Jesus led Simon 
and his entire family to faith in Christ. You know, another thing I find interesting is the Romans would make a prisoner carry his cross through the city as a confession of their guilt. You know, it was the way Rome would communicate to potential malefactors and criminals. You know what? If you commit crimes against the state, you'll end up just like this guy. That was what they were communicating. But Jesus didn't carry his cross because he's not guilty of anything. He's an innocent man. That's what Judas testified of him. The one who betrayed Jesus Christ. Even Pilate called him a just person. He was uh, interrogated by Pilate and Herod, and neither one of them found any fault in Jesus, it says. Right? Pilate's wife even called Jesus a just man, the centurion who had witnessed hundreds of crucifixions. Right? As Jesus breathed his last, the centurion said, truly this man was the Son of God. Jesus couldn't carry the cross because he wasn't guilty of anything. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God who lived a sinless life so that he would be the acceptable sacrifice for sin whose shed blood washes the sin from all who come to him in faith. And in verse 33, we read, And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to a place called, uh, that is to say, place of the skull, Right, This side of Jesus' crucifixion is called Golgotha, uh, the place of the skull. Golgotha in Latin is Calvary. That's where we get the, the word. It's called the place of the skull because there, just outside the city of Jerusalem, there is what looks like a skull formed by these naturally occurring caves in a cliff. And that's the place where criminals were crucified. Josephus, the historian, in the employ of Rome, called crucifixion the most wretched way to die. Crucifixion was perfected by the Romans not to bring about a swift death to one being executed. That wasn't their goal. Crucifixion was perfected by the Romans to bring about the slowest, most painful death possible. You know, they wanted... uh, to make that person suffer the most amount of pain for as long as possible. They wanted not only to break a person who was being crucified physically, they wanted it to be crushing and painful mentally as well. They wanted the victim of crucifixion to suffer, right? Crucifixion didn't allow you to die until it stripped you of every bit of physical, mental, and emotional strength. It was torture and death all rolled up into one. Crucifixion, you know, it was actually like a sporting event to the Romans, right? Because you never knew how long anyone would live. Some would live just for hours while others would live for days. And people... However, you know, they would uh, just sit there and wait it out. They would just watch. They wanted to be a witness of the death of the accused. And they would sit and watch knowing it didn't matter how strong they were mentally, physically, or emotionally. Eventually, crucifixion 
would win out. Not only was crucifixion the cruelest method of execution ever invented, it was also the most disgraceful. It was designed to humiliate and to shame the person who was being crucified. It was designed for that purpose in order to detour others from engaging in crimes and rebellion against Rome. And as I said last week, crucifixion was invented in Persia. They believed that the earth was sacred to their god, Ormuzd, right? So a criminal couldn't be killed in contact with the ground. That would defile it. So they had to lift that, that person up off the ground. And crucifixion moved from Persia to Carthage, right? And then from Carthage to Rome, where it was adopted as their uh, method of capital punishment, and they took that method of crucifixion and perfected it. Crucifixions, the Romans used crucifixion for capital punishment, but it was considered so inhumane that it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen regardless what may have been his crimes. It was reserved for slaves, foreigners, and the absolute worst kinds of criminals. And then in verse 34, it says they gave him sour wine with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. The the wine mixed with gall, it was actually a drug. It was basically a painkiller. They offered it to Jesus before they hammered the nails into his hands and into his feet. You know, it was offered um, to take a little bit of the edge off the pain, right? This wasn't something that the Romans did out of the kindness of their heart. You know, they couldn't care less. But historically, we know that there was a group of wealthy women there in Jerusalem that would prepare this mixture and give it to the condemned as an act of mercy. And it was offered in order to lessen the suffering and the agony that was ahead of those who were to be crucified. And when Jesus tasted it and realized what it was, he refused it. He wanted to be in full control of his senses while he was hanging on the cross. He wanted to taste death completely and fully for each one of us along with all the physical and spiritual terror that came with it. He would endure it all. And in verse 35, we read, then they crucified him. The cross is there. The nails are there. The mallet is there. Everything's there. Jesus would have been laid down, right, there upon the cross, his head at the intersection of the two beams, then one of his arms would have been stretched out along the cross beam. And then the soldier would take an eight to 10 inch long, three eighths, half inch thick iron nail. And with that mallet, begin to drive that nail through his open palm or through the junction of where his hand meant his wrist, Right? nailing his hand to the cross. Now you think of the pain that would have caused our Lord. Then his other arm would have been laid out, same thing done to the other hand. Then a large single nail 
would be driven through his feet into the wood of that cross. And I don't know if we can even begin to imagine the pain. It would have been significantly greater than an exposed nerve in a broken tooth. It would have been significantly greater than a broken arm or a broken leg. Significantly greater than childbirth. Wait a minute. How do you know that's the case, Gary? Well, because women are willing to have more than one child, aren't they? Nobody wants to be crucified, not even once, and certainly not more than once. Just try to imagine the nail being driven through his hands and his feet. Blow after blow after blow, an electric shock wave of pain with every blow of the hammer hitting the nail in order to secure Jesus to that cross. Then the cross would have been pulled up by ropes until it crashed down into a hole in the ground where it could be secured upright with rocks and wedges. And again, just imagine a pain when that cross hit the bottom of that hole with a thud, jarring Jesus' body right on the cross, instantly pulling his body down on those nails. Suddenly, unexpectedly, a tremendous force. And this is just the beginning of a long, agonizing, torturous death. Essentially, death by crucifixion was death by suffocation and heart failure, right? The position of the arms being stretched out in such a manner and the weight of the body, uh, you know, the weight that the body placed upon the uh, chest cavity made it very difficult to breathe. In order to get a breath, a person being crucified would have to pull himself up on the nails in his hands and push himself up on the nails in his feet in order to just quickly grab a gulp of air, right? And then they would slump down because of the intensity of the pain uh, that was produced from the nails. It was totally agonizing and exhausting just to get a breath of air. And they were to repeat this up and down motion, reopening the wounds on their backs, rubbing their back up and down the rough wooden of the Uh, rough wood of the cross. And now think about it. Jesus hung on that cross for six hours. How many times do you breathe in six hours? You know, the average rate of uh, inspiration is about 18 breaths per minute. 18 breaths per minute times 60 minutes times six hours That's 6,480 times up and down on that cross just to grab a breath of air. That cross would become completely blood-soaked and flesh-covered as a result of his back rubbing up and down on the rough wood of that cross for six hours. Ultimately, a person on the cross would be forced to breathe shallower and shallower because their strength would begin to fail, because the pain of the nails would be so intense they wouldn't want to push up and pull themselves up. And they would, uh, because they're breathing less deeply, shallower and shallower, that would uh, cause them to have less oxygen in order to even pull themselves up 
less strength to do that. And so they would slowly suffocate. As they would breathe shallower and shallower, you know, they would get less oxygen in, lung, in their lungs, and that would cause portion of their lungs to begin to collapse, which would begin to stress the heart to work even harder to pump blood that was carrying less oxygen to all the tissues. If a person failed to pass away from just the sheer pain and shock of crucifixion, ultimately the person would die because their lungs and heart would give out under the tremendous stress and strain that uh, crucifixion placed on the organs, and they'd die. By the time that Jesus was lifted on the cross, and after six hours, the six hours that he hung there on the cross, the Bible tells us that he was completely unrecognizable. He was beaten so brutally. In other words, if you had been in Jerusalem the day before and you heard him teaching in the temple, as you listened to him teach with the scriptures with just such great authority, you know, and, and his teaching impacts your heart with such, in such a deep and meaningful way, you know, in a way that you'd never been impacted by anyone. And then as you walked away, you'd think to yourself, you know, I'll never forget that face. As long as I live, I'll never forget the face of the man who spoke with such love and grace. He's impacted my heart in such a way. His face is forever burned now in my memory. I could pick him out of any crowd that uh, I would see him in. I could pick him out easily. And then if you saw him the morning of his crucifixion and you happened to walk by the base of the cross and you looked up on it, at his face and somebody... Uh, you know, you wouldn't have been able to recognize him as the same man that, that you were listening to teach just the day before. And if somebody said, hey, that's Jesus, the one you heard teaching yesterday in the temple, you'd say, no way. It's impossible. That's impossible. That's no way the same man I heard teaching yesterday. I don't believe that. That's how battered and abused his face was. Worse than any car accident would leave a victim. Worse than any industrial accident would disfigure a person. Worse than any maiming or beating that could be meted out on a person. Isaiah said it this way, Isaiah 52, 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, speaking of his face, was marred more than any man. Many, many men have known marring, right? And have been marred in the course of human history, but not like this. And Isaiah goes on to say, say and, his fa- and his form, not just his face, but his body also, more than the sons of men. That's how maimed he was. And in verse 35, they, then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And again, we see Matthew, he points to prophecy here to show us that the crucifixion of Jesus was not an accident. It wasn't a serious series of unfortunate events that, you know, uh, led up to an innocent man dying. No, it was all prophesied. This prophecy, a thousand years before uh, these events took place. 
It was all part of God's plan of salvation for all mankind. This was the cost of our redemption. You have to ask yourself, why did Jesus, the Son of God, endure such suffering and shame? And for that, we need to turn back to the book of Hebrews, the verse that we started the study with, Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that was it, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What caused Jesus to endure all of the brutality at the hands of sinful man? He did it in order to provide salvation for all mankind. He did it in order to provide forgiveness of sin to each one of us. He did it in order that he might be the author and finisher of our faith. It should be humbling for us to realize that Jesus went through all of the mocking, all of the shame, all of the humiliation. He endured the beating and the abuse. He gave himself to the pain and suffering in order that you could be saved. In order that I could be saved. And he didn't hesitate or complain in the least. Who killed Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? Are they the Christ killers? Did the Romans, the Gentiles, did they kill Jesus? Both Jew and Gentile had a significant hand in it. Apart from the Jews, Jesus never would have been crucified. Apart from the Romans, Jesus never could have been crucified. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus was crucified by no one, while at the same time he was crucified by everyone. In the truest sense, Jesus was crucified by no one in that no one could take his life from him. He laid down his life. Jesus said in regards to his life, John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Had Jesus not been willing to die on the cross, you know, it never would have happened. Jesus died on the cross because he came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to lay down his life to provide forgiveness for your sins. He was crucified by everyone in the sense that it was the sin of every individual in the history of the world that was put on him at the cross. It was your sin. It was my sin, right, that put him on the cross. Every one of us played a role in the crucifixion, the brutal crucifixion, the, the sadistic treatment, the, the brutality that was heaped upon Jesus 2,000 years ago. He went to the cross to bear my sin, to bear your sin, and to take the penalty for us that our sin deserves. His love for you is so great. His love for me is beyond comprehension, right? His love for each of us individually is undeserved, and it's so humbling. And we need to allow that love that he has for us to cause us to love him even more. If you're here this morning or watching online and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, right? 
if you've never asked him to come into your life and take control uh, of your life and be your Lord and Savior, my only question is always, what's holding you back? Whatever is keeping you from coming to Jesus, it's actually your enemy, right? You need to know that Jesus loves you. And you need to let that thing that's keeping you from coming to him, you need to let it go. Just imagine how offensive your sin is in the sight of a holy God. You know how abhorrent and repulsive it is that it would necessitate such a sacrifice to atone for it. And then think of how much God loved you in order to send his son to take your penalty. Consider the love of Christ, that he would be willing to suffer and die to provide you with forgiveness for your sins. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there on the cross. It was his love for you that kept him on the cross. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. Jesus willingly went to the cross in order that you might be saved. Right? He he went there that, that he might be able to enter into a loving relationship with you that he could be your Lord and Savior. That's the joy that was set before him, making him willing to endure the cross, despising the shame. We read in Hebrews 12 too. And then my question would be, would you dare rob him of that joy? The way we receive the gift that Jesus paid such a high price to to provide for us is simply by uh, believing in our heart that he, des- that he died for us uh, on the cross, that he took our sins and bore them on the cross. But that's not enough. Our belief needs to be turned into action. It needs to be backed up with action. We need to then turn from our sins and turn towards God and live our lives in obedience to him, in communion with him, confessing him as our Lord and believing in our hearts that he was resurrected again the third day. The Bible says, if anyone will do that, then God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life. Think about that for a moment. Think about what a great privilege that is to give your life to God, one, and then for God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, to come into your life and save you and change you and make you fit for heaven. Man, what an amazing privilege it is to trust him, to trust Jesus for the salvation of our sins, to place your life, to trust your life into the hands of God to be saved. What a privilege that is. You know, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I would ask you, if you're here and you've never done that, you're watching online if you've never done it, I would ask you, why not pray right now and just receive forgiveness for your sin? You know, it's not anything magical. It's just praying from the sincerity of your heart. Lord, I've sinned. I've done wrong. And I ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me, please? I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross, taking my sin upon you, bearing my penalty, enduring the wrath of God that 
my sins deserve. I believe that you did that for me. And as I place my faith in you, you impart your righteousness to me. Thank you, Lord. I receive your gift of salvation right now. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the power to walk with you. And the Bible says if you'll pray a prayer, something like that from your heart, then God will come into your life and make you a new creation. Let's pray. Father, your cross, the cross, the crucifixion, it is so humbling. It's bewildering that you would do such a thing, that you would endure such a thing instead of just washing your hands of us, instead of just turning your back on us, but that you would express your love in such a way, so rich, so free. Lord, I just pray for people that are here that maybe don't know you, people that are watching online that maybe don't know you. Lord, would you move on their heart even now and give them the courage to cry out to you. People that maybe claim to be Christian, but it's just in word only, or people that just have, you know, a a half-hearted commitment to you right now. Lord, would you draw them closer to you right now? Would you just draw them deeper right now into a deeper fuller, richer relationship with you, one that they could never imagine or ever dream of, Lord. God, would you move on people's hearts even now? I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.